Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. As usual, my name is Michael and co-hosting with me is Phoenix. Today we have one guest. Our guest is Tunde. Tunde is a partner at SBM Intelligence, one of Nigeria's leading in uh, political and economic intelligence consultancies. We'll be discussing two topics today. First of all, we'll discuss the polling results released by SBM Intelligence predicting the outcome of the 2023 elections. And secondly, we'll discuss President Buhari's address to the nation and the consequences thereof. So firstly, to SBM's poll. Phoenix, you're our resident in-house prophet. You had prophesied that Peter Obi was going to win this election, and I presume you still stand by your prophecies. So the question is, did you read SBM Intelligence's own predictions, and do they align with your prophecy, Phoenix? Hi, Michael. And uh, hi, Tunde. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you here. And uh, hello, listeners. It's that final week before elections. And of course, I trust uh, Michael to start with calling me prophet again. I mean, now I have people on Twitter who are actually chasing me for <laughs> prophets. But yes, indeed, I, I, I read uh, um, SBM's um, uh, survey report. Um, I mean, I, I get I, I'm, 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 I get their newsletter. So yes, I, I always look forward to things that come out of there. And I was looking forward to this quite eagerly. So yes, I did. I did read it. And, and it was quite, what was most interesting for me was the fact that they, they, they did this together with EIE. Um, and, and I don't know if most of our listeners know um, EIE enough is enough. Um, they are, uh, what would I call them? They are CSO, aren't they? Um, and very active in the advocacy, uh, political activism space. Um, so it was interesting to see both of them collaborating together on this on this work. Huge survey, eleven thousand respondents um, over two surveys. I think they said in January they had about six thousand plus people. Um, some great highlights came out, like you know that. They had done a, a survey in July last year, and then where they had seen um, some um, data that portend um, low turnout. But in, by January, they found out that of their almost 7,000 people that they polled, it was showing that like 97% or something like that had picked up their PVCs. Which, which just, no, sorry, 97% had done registration, about 70-something 70, 70 percent, 71 or something, had actually picked it up. So they are projecting- 79%. Fantastic, thanks to me. So they are projecting a high turnout, which, which of course, Michael will remember, and our listeners will remember, that I've been saying that I expect a high turnout, and that in the event of a high turnout, I expect a, a Peter will be victory. But I think, um, when I then read through it, um, the data was clear in my mind. The conclusion was not as clear because they stopped short of calling um, the making a forecast or making a projection in the sense of saying, well, based on our data, this is who we likely 
see as a front runner, and I'm sure Tunde will dig into that with us. But the data for me, I mean, further strengthened um, my projections, I mean, and my belief that Peter uh, should win this comes next Saturday, um, given what the data was saying. But I mean, I look forward to us getting into it. It's very good to get um, SBM's um, survey as well. Thank you, Phoenix. But could you specifically explain to us why their projections don't seem to to tally with yours? No, they're not making a projection. That's what I'm saying. They're not. They're not caught. What it's what they've done is they've 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 done a survey. They've gotten the data. They've brought out some insights. But they're saying that what they're seeing is not enough for them to call out a clear front runner. Now I'm saying that you can't have someone win. 17 out of 36 states. You say the person is going to get 25, make that 25% in 25 states. And then say, say the others will, I, I, I'm trying to remember my numbers now. I think Atiku was going to get 11 states or 14 states or something like that. But, but you, could, you can't have somebody win almost half of the states. Get, believe that that person is going to hit that 25% in 24 states plus FCT and still say that person is not a is not a front runner. So for me, it just the, the data is saying one thing and then, you know, coming out and saying that I mean, we can't call call somebody a front runner was a bit strange for me. Okay, so thank you, Phoenix. No, 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 that's this is the right point to bring uh, Tunde in. So Tunde, you've heard what Phoenix said. He says your own data is projecting Peter Obi as the clear front runner, achieving the constitutional 25% in I think two thirds of the states. So why are you guys reluctant to crown him the favorite? I like, I like, your, I like the phraseology that uh, you used, crowning him, coronation. Um, I, 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 um, good evening, everyone, first things, and that is listening to us. Um, thank you for joining the podcast. I think for us, the quantitative data was one pillar that formed the basis of our final analysis. It's for any research that you do, so the quantitative bits form a pillar, but there are other non-quantitative bits that go into your final um, analysis of whatever data or whatever research questions that you're trying to answer. And we, sh we did share the detailed state-by-state -state breakdown and the rationale for making certain calls. Having said that, one of the flaws, and I, and I do not want to specifically mention, but one of the flaws that, go, that has gone into a bunch of the other, pro other polls and projections, which we try to ensure that we corrected for, was to assume that all states have the same weighting in electoral calculations. And that's not the reality on the ground. Um, everybody that has looked at these polls um, that we released has agreed that it's a closest to approximation of what looks like the reality of Nigeria than, than most of the other things they've seen. And why is that? We've taken into account um, the fact that, for example, the Northwest has doubled the number of registered voters that the whole of the Southeast has. And therefore, when you are doing the impact of voting there in terms of the popular vote, 
it definitely has a greater weighting in achieving popular vote numbers than um, the Southeast. And that's the reality. Because constitutionally, there are two um, requirements. There is winning the popular vote, and there is also getting 25% in 24 states and the FCT. It means that the, when we do the analysis, we had to confirm that people could get both requirements um, without somebody else. So what will happen, for example, is if somebody else wins the popular vote, but you, you're second and you get 25%, you don't win. So all of that went into our modeling. Things that went into the way we modeled as well, if you looked at all the, the full detailed data, we collected data on the impact of religion. We collected the data on the impact of ethnic um, ethnic um, bias in terms of how people would vote. We collected data on vote buying. We collected data on violence. And all of these outside of just merely asking people, who do you prefer and who would you vote? We collected data on if people would vote the same party across all elections. All of those impacted on how we um, arrived at our final conclusions. And the truth is, it tallies with what um, is intuitive about these elections, that it's very, it's going to be a very, very close election where specific turnout, so not general turnouts, we expect that there will be generally higher turnout than what um, occurred in previous elections. But where will that generally higher turnout come from is a key fundamental factor in who wins these elections. And all of those were the things that we modeled to arrive at our conclusions. Um, so yes, the data quantitative, if you just take um, who, who you vote or who you think will win, I just do straight quantitative analysis. Nitali with what um, Phoenix has, met, has talked about, but you need to contextualize it within all of these other data points that, before we arrive at a conclusion. Hope that um, answers that question. Thank you, Tunde. Before I return to Phoenix, Phoenix, I just want to confirm one thing. So you're saying you're projecting higher voter turnout. What, what percentage turnout are you looking at? Are you projecting? We think that we're going to get something in the 50th percentile. That's close to what we had in 2011, which is the, which is the recently highest voter turnout that we've had. We think that we're going to get back to 2011 type um, numbers. And interestingly, some of the places where the voter motivated, voters that are motivated to turn out more than they would ordinarily do. As an example, in the Southeast, there's an expectation of higher voter turnout because um, Peter Obi is on the ballot and people are motivated to come out and vote for him. Traditionally, the Southeast had one of the lowest voter turnouts in the 20th percentile in some places, in the early 30s in some in many of the places, the highest places that you had, we expect that we're going to at least get to 50% in the Southeast this time. But in the same vein, when, when we ask people in the Southwest, the biggest driver of their voting choices, except in one state, in most of the other states, people said ethnicity was a big driver. And you found people that said they were certain they were going to vote were significantly high in the Southwest. 
indicative again of higher than usual voter turnout in the Southwest. You had a similar scenario in the North Central. You had more lethargic um, um, voter certainty about voting in the Northwest this time, maybe because there's no Buhari on the ballot or something like that. So you, you, you have those pockets across the country, but we think that generally speaking, we'll get to about the 50th percentile this time, as opposed to about 30th percentile, less than 40% that we had in previous elections. Thank you, Tunde. Phoenix, Tunde is saying, as you said previously, that voter turnout will be in the 50s in terms of percentages. And you were saying that that, in effect, con will confirm your prophecy that Peter Obi is the next, is the winner. But Tunde is saying, on the other hand, that whilst it might be 50%, it might not necessarily be the demographic that you were expecting to be the numbers that will come out to vote. So you might get 50%, but it might not be from Peter Obi's uh, voting block. Uh, does, does that in any way change your analysis? Um, no, I, it, it doesn't. I mean, because I think if you look at it, first of all, the starting point is what's the, what's the demographic of registered voters in the first place? We know that, I mean, a significant portion of 18 to 35, I mean, that the 18 to 35 um, a, um, demographic, which is the demographic you expect to lean towards Peter Obi, make up the majority of, of the total voters registered in the first instance. So, I mean, yes, you may, one may, I mean, if we, if we expect high turnout, then you expect that group to also be higher than in the past. And that's where you're expecting him to get a bulk of his vote. So I don't think that, while I understand the sentiment that, I mean, in, the, in past cycles, that group has been the, the group that has been least likely to come out. But we have seen the enthusiasm now. We see that they make up the larger chunk of the overall. And so if there is an increase in turnout, do you expect that they, they, they most likely will be the ones creating that increase? Because, I mean, the, the conversation has been, what, what how, how much, I mean, if Tune, if Tune believes, I think that's even more aggressive than I thought that I've been thinking. Remember, just last week, I was saying I expect something between 45 to 50%. And if it's above 50%, he's should run away with it. Because if we see above 50%, make no mistake about it, it will be because of the, of the OB support and that demographic that you will see an above 50%. Because that's significant. Bear in mind that, again, today is telling us that from their survey, about 79% of people have collected their PVC. So if we see more than 50% of total registered voters coming out, that's huge. Because that means that that's basically saying that, um, uh, we're basically saying that, what's, let me do my math now. I mean, if 50% out of 80% 80, 80 of people who have PVC has come out, you're basically saying what? Uh, now my math is failing me. <laughs> You're going to get about <laughs> between 35 and 40 million people voting. Exactly. No, but I'm even saying, I mean, you're, you're, you're basically saying that about 63% of people who can vote, because if you don't have a PVC, there's no point. If you haven't collected it, there's no point, which is why I've always been interested in the data of how many people have collected their PVCs. 
So if we're expecting more than 50% of people to come out, that's that's significant. And that would and the reason for that, and a lot of what we are hearing is first-time voters, people who are who are excited by by the OB candidacy. People are not planning to leave their homes to go and vote for Tinubu or to go and vote for Anatiku. So that OB demographic will come out and they will come out to vote. So I'm not I'm not even worried about that. Can I come in there very quickly, um, but Michael? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. 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 Um, so th- that's that's an assumption that um, I think we need to disabuse our minds from that. There are no people that are coming out to vote, um, leaving their homes to go and vote for a Tinubu article. It's, it's far from the reality on ground. Um, and not as many... Uh, so in, in the surveys we had, for example, and I always encourage that we break this thing down on a state-by-state basis, on a demographic, on a location-by-location location basis, so that we, we 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 see the nuance. And what, what I'm expecting the people that support people or the politicians to do, if they have the time and the team, is to look at the data and say, where are the new voters? Where In some places, what you still have coming out is the traditional voters. You know, in places like Taraba, what we found is that um, 90% of them, for example, are not new voters of the respondents that we polled, are not new voters. Whereas in places like Abia, for example, uh, sorry, in places like Anambra, yes, 42% of them were new voters. Or in places like Kogi, 36% of them were new voters. But you still had some places, you know, Adamawa, Bauchi, that had very high numbers of people that are traditional voters, not a lot of new voters, and that will, that are clear will vote along the traditional expected lines. That's number one. Number two is that not all these new young people that have registered are going to vote for OB. It's just not, it doesn't follow the way Nigeria is structured, where 40, 45% of people are saying that their religion will influence what they, how they vote in these elections. So we need to balance that expectation that because a lot of young people register to vote, it automatically translates into OB votes. That's not the reality on ground. It's a lot more nuanced than that. Of course, there's an expectation that um, a, a chunk of those guys are, will be OB guys, but do not discount that many of them are very, very Tinubu people. Many of them may also be very, very Atiku people. Let's not discount that. Thank you, Tunde. Now to go to a second part of this conversation, which is the threat of violence. So has have, have you all, what, what role do you think violence will play in, in these projections? Do you think they might, or, or has this have, have these protections already factored the risk of violence? Absolutely. Um, so, in in the in the one of the non quantitative things that we factored in was violence, history of violence, or the threat of violence um, based on current happenings in the place, and we factored that into this poll. That's why we said that we didn't just do quantitative. One of the questions we asked in this um, poll was, have you experienced violence in previous election cycles? Um, And over 40% of the respondents have experienced electoral violence in previous election cycles. So 
that's a lot. And of course, this is different per state. So you have states like Oyo where this is pretty high. You have some states where it's not as high, but a lot of people have experienced electoral violence. In a different poll that we that we did, one of the biggest reasons why people do not turn up for voting is either actual violence or the fear of violence. Um, so it's a it's a real issue. Um, there is also the fact that there's been targeted violence, unlike in the lead up to many other elections, targeted violence at the electoral umpire in many places across the country. So all of those also have impacts on not just voter turnout, but even the ability of INEC to conduct elections in certain places. So all of these would have some impact. But all in all, we don't think that this is enough to truncate the desire of people to vote because the things that are driving people to vote the way to come out to vote in many places is close to um, survival. Some people see these elections as a survival thing, you know. Um, for example, a lot of the Christians in the Middle Belt see these elections as a do or die. This is the only way we can survive. Um, in in cert So the things that are driving people are more than the um, ex- the, the current experience of violence in those places. So we expect that there will be violence. It may depress it slightly, but it won't be enough. However, in the pockets where there are, there's going to be very focused violence, for example, River State has a history of electoral violence, and it's very likely from the atmosphere in the state that that's going to also be a, fa a factor in these elections. We expect that it will impact electoral turnout more significantly. That's definitely expected. Thank you, Tunde. Phoenix, the other question or the other issue that needs addressing is, is the religious and ethnic factor that Tunde touched upon. He's, he's mentioned the fact that Christians in the Middle Belt are very, very concerned and consider this election to be do or die. Now, do you think they are likely to lean towards B, or do you think they'll go to Atiku and why? I think, if, can, you, can you hear me? Okay. I, I think the first, I mean, before I even go to that, I mean, uh, going back to Tunde's earlier point around turnout and things like that, I think if, if we're saying that, again, that we expect a higher turnout than normal, we also have to let data you know, guide us um, towards that. So I look, I look to 2019 where we had, I think overall was there about 35%. Of the, there were only 15 states that had more than 35% turnout for 2019. Out of those 15, only two were in the South. So if we're now talking about 50% this year, where do we think that 50% that is going to come from? It, I mean, if we're going to go to 50%, how, how is 50% going to happen? It means that you're going to have outsized turnout in the South because that's how averages work. For you to get to 50%, it means that those that were depressed in the 19%, in the 20% in have to come up to meet those other ones. So you, you're going to have less of an increase up North and more down South. 
And if that is going to happen again, where, where I'm not saying that every single Southerner or most Southerners will go to Obi, but let, um, what I'm clear about is that he's in two of the three geopolitical zones in the South, he will, he will take a lead. And so if it is the South that is going to push significantly the turnout up, then it, it stands to reason that, that, that most of those new votes or the votes that would take us beyond the 35% that we have last had, bear in mind that we're talking about 35% of 80, 84 million. We're now talking about 50% of 93 million. So, I mean, when I look at all those numbers, it is, it, I mean, it points to a significant push in the areas where he's more popular. So for me, the data needs to begin to speak to that. Uh, Michael, to your question around uh, religion, really, for me, I, I would not automatically assume that, be, that because Christians are worried about a Muslim Muslim ticket or have concerns with all the things that have happened, particularly in the middle bed, they will naturally move towards uh, Peter B. I think that yes, it, it will be a combination of religion and ethnicity, because the, the things that people have faced in the middle, in the middle better in those places are both a combination of, you know, Fulani headsmen and, and all of those kinds of things that they faced, as well as some of the religious, um, you know, uh, persecution of Christians. And, you know, we're seeing so many priests lose their lives. We've seen things like that happen. So people will have, will be in different camps. There'll be those who will be against, I mean, you know, clearly against a Muslim Muslim ticket. And in their mind, for them, it could be an article or an obi, they, they will decide um, what is their poison if they are also worried about the fact that Atiku is a, is, is a Fulani person. So for me, it doesn't, ne it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, I mean, all Christians will choose Obi. For me, it would mean that there is more, there is the higher likelihood that they will push against a Muslim Muslim ticket, but then they now have two options that they can then decide to choose from depending on what else bothers them. And so, and that's why I've been happy that Obi is not positioned, has not positioned himself and has clearly always said that, look, don't vote for me because I'm a Christian. Don't vote for me because I'm from this part, part of the country, because he also knows that it will be the wrong thing to do in a, in a multi-religious, multi-ethnic society as ours. And I'm hoping that that stands in good stead as he, as he goes to the polls next Saturday. Thank you, Phoenix. Um, Tunde, I think you wanted to respond. Or did I? Right. Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. Um, so the question was that um, in those areas, for example, in the Middle Belt and um, some parts of the North, if the Christian vote would automatically go to OB, or if there will be other options they would select. And on this, um, so in the Middle Belt, there is the preponderance of people that have said we are separating these presidential elections from all the down ballot elections. That's actually the biggest place where that pattern exists. And the reason is for a lot of the Christians in those places uh, were very aware that um, in their associations, in their religious um, groupings in the big religious groups there, places like Equa and the likes, 
the conversation has been to vote Peter Obi for president um, because the two big issues that they have from that from those areas, he's the it, it's not because they like Peter Obi more than anybody. Don't don't get me wrong. They they think is the best thing since sliced bread. It's a one person has not has looked through the north and did not find any Christian that he could select as a vice in a country like Nigeria. The other is is a Fulani man. The reason why we suffered this much is because the person that is there that made Fulani people as bold as they have been to deal with us in the way that they have was a Fulani man. So one of us another Fulani man. Who's the next viable person? Obi. Is it oh he's a Christian? That makes it even better. That's sort of how, and this is things that we've done work talking to the people that are not educated in those areas, and that logic is exactly what they've explained. So we think we think that's why heavily, and even the poll data says that that heavily in the middle belt, you are going to get that. And not just in the middle belt, many people forget that in the Northwest, for example. In some of the states, there's as high as 30%, 25% of the population that is indigenous Christian, and then there are migrant Christians that live there as well. And many of these groups, uh, for example, in a place like Sokoto, are determined to make a statement, especially because of things like what happened with Deborah and the likes. So we're going to see very, very clearly in these elections, one of the instances where religion plays a big role in the North. And when people say religion at that time, it's not just whether it's Mus the Christians will vote in a certain way and the Muslims will vote in a different way. It's what it looks like in the North at this time. And we're going to have that in different pockets in the North where you have those kinds of groupings. Borno is 30% Christian. And we were surprised at the kind of poll numbers that we saw be polled in Borno. You know, so clearly there is that big issue that is not going away this time in this election. Whether the candidate explicitly says it or does not explicitly say it, people are motivated for these reasons. Thank you, Tunde. Now we'll go to our next topic, which is Buhari's address to the nation on this Naira scarcity drama or scandal or whichever uh, term you prefer. Phoenix, did you listen to Buhari's speech? Can you summarize to us what, what the summary of what Buhari said and whether it filled you with confidence that he was in control? Oh, definitely showed that he was in control. I mean, the, the, the summary of what he said was, I mean, he, he expressed... Um, he expressed um, his um, sympathy with um, with with the people um, for the stress being caused by the Naira redesign and and the incompetent rollout from the central bank. Of course, as Buhari's want to do, he blamed. <laughs> he always finds somebody doing something unscrupulous to blame. So he he picked on the bankers this time around. Um, and as he spoke about, you know, the, the fact that, I mean, the policy has basically come to stay, but he has allowed the 200 naira to come back into circulation for the next two months. Um, he did then 
and of course we reiterate and stress the reason why he's pushing against this um he wants to make sure that there are free and fair elections he wants to make sure the elections are not muddied by by um you know those looking to use their resources and things like that um and urge nigerians to go out and vote for who they want without fear or favor so I, for me, it was just a very strong statement of intent to make it clear to anyone who was in doubt that this is coming from him. And that in as much as people had, you know, we've said all sorts. Of course, I, I, I regularly call out uh, Emefiele, um on stuff, especially because the execution has been poor. Um, either by design or not. Um, but this was, I'd never been in doubt in my mind that this was a Buari thing and that, and, and that was what he wanted to make clear to everyone, that this was, uh, this was from him. And, and all, but also it was interesting, the timing of his, uh, of his um, speech, which of course he, if you remember, he had given an extension until on the 10th. And then, of course, we also know that there was this, uh, uh, what's he called? The Supreme Court injunction, which he waited for it to, to lapse before he came out to give his speech. So the man is clearly, uh, he's of no doubt of what he wanted to do. And, and, and that came through very clearly. Thank you, Phoenix. And then what, what, what about... There have been allegations that Buhari has, has usurped the Supreme Court by his address. Do you agree with that view? Did Buhari contradict the Supreme Court's ruling or were they commenting on separate issues? Well, I don't think he contradicted the Supreme Court ruling um, and for a number of reasons. One, I, I, will, I, I was and I'm, I still am in a state of shock that, that the Supreme Court... <laughs> Gave an expati ruling on a constitutional matter, on a matter between states and the federal government. I mean, for those who are not, I mean, um, aware of what it means, an expati ruling means when you give a ruling when one of the parties has not been notified, is not aware. You've taken someone to court, they don't know, and you go to court and you're going to get a ruling against them. For a weighty matter such as states versus federal government for me was beyond the pale. But, but, the, but, and I've spoken to, to, um, you know, very senior lawyers and even a, a justice who was breaking this down and saying, look, there, there are rules for court proceedings, and that yes, the Supreme Court was in order to hear the case. Because of course, states once they state once it's state versus federal government, it is a. It, I mean, Supreme Court can can take original jurisdiction, but the matter of at hand that the Supreme Court was hearing will follow the federal high court rules, which means that if you give an ex parte ruling, it expires within seven days because it's not supposed to be forever. It's you 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 can't give an ex parte ruling and go away or say until the next. Um, conversation because essentially what you are doing is you have granted the relief to the to the person to the plaintiff who brought the who brought the case you have already it's almost like you've already judged it because you're already punishing the other person and telling them to stop not doing what they're supposed to do so typically it lapses after seven days so that's why it was interesting 
that by the time Buhari was giving his speech, the, the ruling that the Supreme Court ostensibly should follow the rules was no longer in force. So he, he necessarily, while he did not respond to it and did not undo the order by waiting on, until it lapsed, and, and, I, and I asked that people should confirm that because I had heard this from um, a, a very senior person, that by waiting, he waited for it to lapse. So by the time he was making his speech, he wasn't in, he wasn't in contravention. He wasn't doing anything that was against um, um, the Supreme Court ruling. As it, as even though you know, I do not, I did not expect the Supreme Court to give that ruling. So he did, he he let it pass, and then he came out and reinforced his comment. Now the the the, the it's now up to the Supreme Court when they now sit again for us to then see what they come up with when they actually hear the case. Thank you, Phoenix. Tunde, first question to you is, do you agree with Phoenix that technically Buhari did not defy the Supreme Court? And then second question to you is, some governors, especially Nasir al-Rufai, seem to have constituted an alternative center of governance in response to Buhari's ruling. Is, is that the appropriate, in your view, response to Buhari's speech? I mean, I'm going to answer the second question first because um, I think the, the law is clear on who determines what legal tenders, are, what the legal tender in the country is. And legal tender is essentially defining trade, um, how people trade in the country, what you can exchange for trade as currency. Um, what the CBN has then said is that this ceases to be legal tenders, but you can turn them into, turn them in. Um, it doesn't really, I, I don't see how what the male refire doing is quote unquote, is legal. But more importantly, the people have generally ignored the governors. And that, that tells you where the power is or where the people perceive the real power around this currency matter is the governors have gone on air um, in different states to say different things. Um, if you don't accept or revoke your CFO, continue to accept in our states and all that kind of stuff. And when you go into the streets, people are just ignoring it as if the guy hasn't said anything and are essentially complying or listening to what has come from Abuja. And it's the, it's the thing they do because they know that in the end of it all, if they are left with those pieces of paper and Abuja says it's worthless, then those pieces of paper are worthless at the point. And so people are responding to what they know is the actual reality of things. The governors are playing to the gallery. Um, I, re I do remember very clearly when this, um, when this thing came out in December before it became a political issue of this nature. And we at SBM, we did talk about how we didn't think that the timing was right because we were aware of how long that proposal had been on the president's table. Um, we also didn't think that the window of time was given. And I remember many um, people in the ruling party who are very vocally against it now come out to support it very, very vehemently, you know. But as has turned out, um, it feels like it's politically expedient for them to be against it now. And so they have all decided to 
begin quote and unquote become champions of the people i think people can see through all of that all of that dramatization that they are doing and know that these guys do not mean anything well for them it's just for them politicking um so that's the first thing right to just put out there the second thing is around um the technicalities of if buhari has um you saw the supreme court and all of that type of thing now for for me i i took a step back to say is is this um is, is this uh, initially the reason why those by, by law actually the person that executed this policy is the central bank and the Central Bank Act is very clear that there's a distinction between the CBN and the federal government and the state governments, and that the issues of legal tender and currency are the exclusive reserve of the CBN. Very, very clear. The law is clear on that. So if there is a currency issue and the states have decided to sue another party and they've gone ahead to sue the federal government, without joining the central bank to the suit. And the Supreme Court has gone ahead to give an order to the federal government to carry out an action that will by default be illegal because it's not within the powers of the federal government to carry out that action. Then it's a useless in my view. And I, I'm very careful about the choice of that word. It's not a useful order because the federal government does not have the legal power to do what it has been asked to do. The central bank is the one that is that has that power. The reason the states have refused to join the central bank to the suit is because as soon as they join the central bank to the suit, then original jurisdiction moves away from the Supreme Court immediately because it's no longer a matter between federal and state governments. That's really the politicking that is going on. And it's 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 really disappointing that the that the Supreme Court has allowed itself to get entangled and be utilized politically in this manner. Um, Phoenix is right in the sense that Buhari has essentially waited out the ex-party order because after seven days, the ex-party order expires anyway. He has technically waited it out, so he hasn't done anything that technically and right now everybody is then going around the technicality without the substance of the matter um so he hasn't technically um plotted that um supreme court order because it will expire in seven days anyway and he waited that out thank you tunde so second to phoenix what has given these, because Tunde has, has said that, in his view, these governors are agitating, not because they care about the poor, they're agitating for their own sort of political agendas. But these same governors have been silent for almost eight years as Buhari moved from one issue to the other. What has suddenly given them the courage to stand up to him? Because the previous narrative was that everybody was terrified of Buhari and nobody would dare speak up. So why have they suddenly found their backbone, Phoenix? In, in, in popular democratic parlance, they call it the lame duck uh, presidency when you're in your final term, yeah, well, when, you, when you're 
um, term limited and you are in the last days, there's already an election coming. I mean, typically that president has less influence because people know you are not coming back. They know you're about to be replaced very soon. And that can only be the explanation why people feel emboldened um, to come out and do this. I think they also believe that Buhari is, if, which is interesting for me because I, I, I mean, given how he's let, he's governed the country and the way he's behaved and what, what I've always thought of the man, I'm surprised that he's, he's now chasing legacy. But it is interesting that, uh, I mean, they believe, I think they also believe that he truly wants a legacy of, you know, you know, handing over, moving on. He sees how the likes of uh, Jonathan and uh, and uh, Obasanjo are accorded respect. So they, they don't expect him to be too heavy-handed in, in, um, in um, how would I put it? In repaying them if they really go against him, so I think those are those are some of the things that will probably enable them to be emboldened. But maybe the final point would also be the pressure that they are under from the man that they've chosen to support, um, and in some cases there have been uh, significant favors going one way, and and they're expected to fulfill their own end of the bargain, and. I mean, Tinubu expects that people who who should be supporting him should show that they truly support him and use their office because he's not in power. They're in power. They're state governors. That they should use that office to make sure that uh, he gets what he needs. So if we look at all those things, you would explain why, I mean, why they are willing to um, put their necks out on, on that basis. A number of them are also second-term governors, the El Rufais, the Gandujes of this world. I, I can't remember if, if Yaya Bello is also a second-term governor, but a number of them are, are also term-limited in their governorship spaces and also thinking about their political careers after that and have chosen to, you know, bet on, on the Tinubu ticket. And so they're willing to do whatever is necessary to, to, get, to get that done. Thank you, Phoenix. So the other question is, with regards to the PDP and Labour Party, have they taken a position on this issue or are they just hedging their bets? You mean on the Naira redesign issue? Yes, and this drama with Buhari and the Supreme Court. What, what role is the Labour Party and PDP playing? It's, it's interesting. I haven't seen them. I haven't seen them wade into the Supreme Court drama. I know that bo both candidates, uh, Atiku and Obi, have you know expressed their views um, on the Naira redesign and and the fact and you know that their issues both seem to be towing the same line as as saying you know, it, it, the policy is out. Let's make sure that the people, I mean, are not worse off. CBN, federal government, try and do your best to, to relieve the pressure. And they've basically asked for people to be calm. Although I just saw something recently just on social media earlier this evening, I don't know how true it is, which suggests that Atiku may now be calling out the 
the inconvenience to the people as as a more significant issue uh, and so on. But I've not seen them wade into the um, you know the taking the federal government to the court by the state governors and all of that. And I think we, I think it's I think it's good strategy on their part because really at the end of the day it seems like it's APC fighting APC. So for 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 them it makes sense for APC um, to 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 self emulate and and create a path for one of them to win. So why you why do you want to get in? involved when your enemy is, just, is desperate to destroy itself. So I think for them, I mean, you, you know, staying out of it and seeing how it unfolds is a good strategy. But they have individually spoken about the narrative design and the issues that, uh, that have ensued across the country. Thank you, Phoenix. Now to Tunde. This policy, on the one hand, is being championed by Buhari. On the other hand, Bola Tinubu is, is vocal, vehemently against what Buhari is doing. Some people have said this is indicative of the fact that Buhari doesn't want Bola Tinubu to win and is doing all he can to sabotage Bola Tinubu's chances. Do you agree with that point of view, Tune, or do you think there's something else at play? I think I think that this there may be some truth in that position, um, and it's probably why, especially after that meeting that they that Tinubu went to in um, if you remember, there was a time when Emifele was in hiding and DSS was chasing him around, and it was said that he then went to he had it was spirited to see Buhari, and that seemed to be sorted out, and it was around the same time that Tinubu went. Um, to see Buhari as well in Dara. And right after that, he came out shooting from all, from the hip, you know, on these types of matters. So it will appear to me that post that meeting, there's a possibility that whatever, you know, issues and bargaining they try to do in that, in that, um, in that meeting that may have involved some consequences for Emefele. It seemed that Buhari was ready to stand and you know defend Emefele. And it was after that time we began to see Emefele making public pronouncements and speaking publicly again. So it was clear that the security threats, you know, security agency threat over him had been dissipated um, after that. So there is some and there is some credence that will be lent to the fact that um, it is not outside the realms of possibility that this is true and that Tinubu's reactions to it may stem from that. And the fact that he has deployed his big guns because within his campaign, his big guns are guys like El Rufai and Co. The governors are the biggest guns he has at the moment. And he has deployed his biggest guns to fight this particular matter. So it seems to me that yes, he perceives it as a real existential issue as it goes into the elections. And it, it's clear that Buhari's hands are very, very much behind it, either protecting the Mefele or actively being the one that is pushing that the policy. Well, that's interesting. So 
you're saying you think Buhari had a meeting with Tinubu in Katsina and there was a falling out. Is that what you're saying? So Buhari and Tinubu fell out during that meeting? I think Buhari, uh, I think the, I wouldn't call it a falling out. I would call it a refusal to give um, Tinubu what he asked for in that meeting. I don't know if it was a falling out, falling out, but I think it was at that point, because up to that point, it looked like Tinubu's approach was to be more conciliatory and, you know, be more ob- oblique about his um, comments on these matters. But after that uh, meeting, I, I'll try and look for the date somewhere. But I think after that engagement was when he just, it got to that point, where it got to his second Emilocon moment where he was like, if I don't make this a frontal attack, then I might as well wait to be annihilated or something like that. And he just went all out, deployed his big guns. And since then, he's just been firing at all, at will, if you may. Oh, that's interesting. And, but but you don't think this is because Buhari is not supporting Tinubu? Or you don't have a view on that? I didn't say that. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know this for sure, but all of the... Um, it's indicative that he it doesn't look like he's actively supporting Tinubu. Now, there's been some dramat- dramatization that has happened recently where he has come out to release a statement to um, also, um, I think there was, there was also some video of him speaking about it and speaking in Pausa and all of that. But I think, I don't, I don't think that there is active support from Buhari there for the Tinubu, camp, Tinubu presidency. I don't think so. And there might even be the situation where he's using, there may be a situation where he's using this as a tool to hamstring or handicap or maybe level the playing ground um, as to what people would have considered a a distinct advantage that Tinubu would have had going into the elections. Do you get what I mean? So if, if, if Tinubu can win without that advantage, then maybe, but... If he can't, then so be it as well. That's how I think Buhari is approaching this. Thank you, Tunde. Let me come to Phoenix. Phoenix, this drama within the APC seems a bit odd to outsiders because even this currency debate we're having, it's an APC policy being challenged by APC governors. The CBN governor was reappointed by an APC president that is very loyal to Buhari. So it seems odd from my perspective as an outsider. But the further question is, why would there even be doubt about whether or not an APC president supports the APC's candidate? Why why is that even a, a discussion? I mean, we all remember how this APC candidate got his uh, ticket, right? I mean, so I think that, I think it's fair that there is some doubt. He had to practically have an outburst, which birthed the famous uh, Emilocon, um, <laughs> Emilocon, uh, what he called Monica that he now has. Um, we know all the shenanigans that went on and. And the fact that uh, the APC national chairman, who was appointed by, or I mean, it was Buhari who practically put him in place, had named somebody else and wanted that person to be the consensus guy. So we know all the drama around the APC primaries. And of course, people kept pointing to Buhari being 
the one behind it all, or at least the people around him doing his bidding and things like that. So um, I think that episode and with Tinubu, you know, finally getting the ticket has never put people people in the Tinubu camp at ease and Tinubu himself has not, has not felt um, um, comfortable and felt that, look, he, there's a target on his back and he's been going about with his campaign with that concern. But he also knew that he had no path um, to victory by having, by declaring open war on Buhari, especially in the North. Um, and so, yeah, you know, they still went along with, you know, once the campaign started, Buhari did come out and has been campaigning with him in the, in, in the North. Uh, but you see the difference in the, in the election rhetoric when Tinubu is in the south and he's alone, he's castigating Buhari in certain places. When he goes up north, he's shining his teeth and happy to bask in Buhari's support. So it's been a very tenuous relationship. And, and what, what, what has brought it to a head are the accusations that Tinubu then made saying, you know, the fuel scarcity, um, and and the and then fixating on the naira redesign were acts of sabotage uh, towards his campaign ostensibly that you know by having these kinds of issues happening now putting the apc in a bad light it was making it difficult for him to campaign and of course it was putting his uh, aspirations in jeopardy and and of course the i mean when people put one plus one together they say who's the petroleum minister Buhari, who's the person who's clearly coming out and saying, I ordered the redesign, Buhari. And so if you are the one behind the two issues that, that Tinubu is calling out, then quite clearly you're, you're, you're the one who's making things difficult for Tinubu to become uh, the next president. So th those are the things that I believe uh, people point to to allude to the fact that Buhari hasn't been supportive, but the man himself has been at pains to say, Look, I, I support this guy. This is the um, this is uh, the candidate of my party. I've raised his hand. I've gone out with him. He's still to Tunde's point. He's done a a statement today. He's released two videos, one in English and one in um, in Hausa, um, to be distributed up north. You know, reiterating the fact that Tinubu uh, has his full support. So I think he also feels the the anxiety and the tension which is leading him to do this because I fully agree with Tunde's earlier comments around Buhari and his, uh, and his folks focus on things that benefit him or the fact that he doesn't move on anything unless it inconveniences him. He clearly is feeling the, the pressure of, um, you know, Tinobu's unhappiness and with all the governors who are looking to meet him such that he's making a point of showing his support and, and coming out to, um, you know, um, to stop the diatribe. Because I think for him as well, um, if there's one thing that Buhari holds there, it's his image, that Megaskia man of integrity image. And there have been some murmurings um, also in the North saying that, look, you came to power only because you were supported by this guy and the Southwest. 
um, and not, and one good turn deserves another, you should you know keep your end of the bargain and let let support them now that it's their turn to seek power. And and he, I I suspect that that's also something that is playing up with him while he's doing all of his appearances because it makes him look bad if truly he's the one trying to scupper um, Tinubu's candidacy and and that that doesn't play well with the image that he tries to set. Thank you, Phoenix. Let me give the last word to Tunde because our time is almost up. So, Tunde, the elections are on the 25th. We have about four days or five days between now and then. Do you think there's going to be a full-blown civil war between Bola Tinubu and Buhari before then? Or do you think it's just going to be simmering in the background as it seems to have been? I, I think it will simmer in the background and then um, there might be a showing of hand by Buhari on election day. That's what I think will happen. Um, but nothing full blown out there is going to happen. You're just going to get more escalated noises from the Tinubu camp. Uh, I'm sorry, when you say showing of hand, what, how, what is Buhari planning? Do you know? What I think is that he's going to try to is <laughs> going to try to level the playing field so that there's no advantage there's no advantages the, expect, oh, the expectation from the Buhari camp and the APC generally especially the ACN component of the APC and I try to always remind people that the APC is an SPV and um, 2015 to 2023 was the CPC elements of the APC enjoying most of the benefits. And 2023 onward is seen as the by the ACN components of the APC as their turn. And they want support. They want to be given the advantages of having their party as incumbents what is like, what they are not getting and why there's such a huge grievance and complaint from those components is that they're not getting what they expect as the advantages of being the incumbent party, right? Um, they're not going to get that advantage, not from um, Buhari, because it's not personally benefiting from it. In fact, it personally benefits from being seen as a president that his legacy was conducting a quote-unquote free and fair election now that he's not on the ballot. So that's what's likely to happen um, in the elections. Thank you, Tunde. Anyway, the elections are going to be in seven days. So all you've said and, I mean, your analysis and projections as well as Phoenix's will be able to determine... We were to see whether they come to light in, in the next uh, seven days, because that's 25th is Saturday. So by Sunday, for Phoenix in particular, we will know if it's time to move your ministry to the permanent site, as they say. If Obi is declared winner on Sunday, then we might need to open a church, the prophetic Phoenix Ministries. I don't, so, I don't uh, see us knowing the winner until <laughs> some, something like Tuesday. Okay, Thank so... You. Thank you for thank you for bringing that dose of reality, Jerry. Don't mind. <laughs> 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 okay. well, Tuesday, we'll know if we're opening a church for Phoenix to start prophesying uh, full blown. 
But yes, yeah, so anyway, our time is up. So first of all, thank you to Nay for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. Thank you, Phoenix, for co-hosting. And last but not least, thank you to our listeners. The elections are taking place this Saturday. So please, if you're in Nigeria, vote. Vote for whoever you believe is best for Nigeria. And hopefully by, I'm confident that we'll get the results by Sunday, but Phoenix on Tuesday say it's Tuesday, but, but we shall see. But anyway, thank you and have a fantastic seven days. Thanks, Michael. And thanks, Tunde, for joining us. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thanks for to the listeners and bye, everyone. Thanks, listeners. And uh, don't mind, Michael, that is trying to set me up for dragging. But yes, come out and vote. Turnout is important. You've heard from Tunde. You've heard from SBM. Everyone is saying we should have record turnout. It's important. And uh, next time we speak, hopefully we should have an indication of where we're heading to. Have a good week, everyone.